Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. George Gregrich was in no mood to chat. He had three cans of beer at his feet and a bottle of 50-cent wine at his side. And considering he was barely able to afford the 90-cent-a-night cot in the flop house that he was currently calling home, he just wasn't feeling all that neighborly. So when a plaintive voice from the next room called out to him, he was gruff in his reply. Leave me alone. The voice came as more of a whine than a cry. Please come and see me, it said. Gregrich again refused. I ain't coming to see you. I work hard all day. I need rest. It was a man's voice, soft and with a southern drawl. You gotta come see me. I done something bad. I'm going to die here if you don't come and see me. Shut up, said Gregrich. And he stuck his landing, refusing to go visit the whining man from room 584 in Chicago Star Hotel. What he didn't know is that the man really was in trouble. He had broken a wine bottle and slit his right wrist in the inside of his left elbow, where he had aimed to sever his brachial artery. Blood poured from his wounds onto his cheap bed, then dripped through onto a stack of newspapers gathered on the floor. Those newspapers all bore headlines about the manhunt underway for the madman who killed eight student nurses in their shared apartment. That madman was named Richard Speck, and he was bleeding to death while begging for George Gregrich to come and see him. Just two days earlier, he had committed a crime that introduced Americans to the concept of random mass murder, a crime so brutal that the coroner immediately dubbed it the crime of the century. The first time I heard Richard Speck's name was in song. In the eighth grade, I discovered my mom's old Simon and Garfunkel albums and became absolutely enamored. One of their lesser-known songs is called Seven O'Clock News slash Silent Night. And it's this eerie combination of a soft and sweet rendition of Silent Night sung a cappella beneath the brutality of current events described in a newscast. I didn't know until years later that the song actually flubs the details. There were nine nurses, but one of them survived. On July 14th, 1966, Speck broke into a townhouse shared by the young women. Most were nursing students, but a few were paid exchange nurses from the Philippines and managed to talk them into being tied up before he tortured and killed all but one of them. He wasn't showing the ninth one mercy, to be clear. He had just killed so many over a nearly five-hour period that he lost count 
and she managed to hide. This crime made headlines across the world. Our next door neighbor, Mrs. Windmiller, asked me if I heard this awful screaming. And uh, May we get the uh, other descriptions, Doctor, where the other bodies were and what now, happened? In the uh, east bedroom, there were two girls lying on the floor. The only thing that I might say to this man is that he is psychologically sick. And he ought to turn himself in. He ought As I said before, this is the crime of the century. Those are bits of news coverage from an episode of A&E Biography that focused on the case. To understand how Richard Speck came to be and how his path crossed with these completely innocent women, you have to back up to 1941. It was near the end of that year, on December 6th, that he was born to a not-so-young couple named Benjamin and Mary Margaret Speck. Richard's dad was 47 when Mary, about age 38, gave birth to the couple's seventh of eight children. Their first child had been born in 1922, meaning there was about a generation between their oldest and their youngest. The family lived in Monmouth, Illinois. Richard had come after a nine-year hiatus from baby birthing. Because of that, he never really bonded with the family's older kids. But his parents gave birth to one final daughter, and Richard was really close to that sibling, whose name was Carolyn. Aside from having kids spread out over a few decades, the family was pretty solid, stable. Dad Benjamin had worked a variety of jobs, all manual labor-type gigs, like farming and logging. For a while, he worked as a packer at Western Stoneware in Monmouth. Richard wasn't his first son. He actually had two older ones. But Benjamin, for some reason, really connected with his youngest. Whereas he had left Mary to rear the older kids and Carolyn, with Richard, he was much more hands-on. The two could sit in silence and just kind of get each other. Fishing was a favorite pastime. The carefree time spent with his father was a respite from the austere, deeply religious household run by his mother. Mom Mary was quite strict. The kids were all raised Presbyterian and were expected to go to church on Sundays. Vices, like smoking and drinking, were absolutely forbidden. While she and her husband largely got along, she did scold him enough that people noticed after he had had beer at a fish fry in 1946. And still, the family was, by all accounts, loving, normal. But as happens fairly often in these stories I tell, tragedy struck the Speck household. In 1947, when Richard was just six years old, his dad had a fatal heart attack. He was only 53. As Richard's mother and older siblings tried to make sense of their sudden loss, they kind of left Richard to deal with it on his own. No six-year-old is equipped for that, and Richard was no exception. He started acting out in school, eating crayons to get the teacher's attention. Soon, he was being coddled at home. His mother, guilt-ridden about the grief her kids were enduring, spoiled the youngest two especially. In fact, there was a rift between the six older kids and the two youngest. The older kids had had strict versions of their parents as they grew up, whereas Richard and Carolyn were doted on. Years later, a classmate told A&E that Richard managed to get teachers to dote on him too. One time, the classmate spotted Richard sitting on a teacher's lap. I asked her, why was Richard sitting on your lap? 
And she replied, Oh, Richard Speck was acting like such a big baby. I couldn't think of any better place to put him. It would seem this negative attention would leave an impression on the young boy. He learned how to get what he wanted by being, or at least seeming, vulnerable. As he grew older, he spent more time lost in his thoughts. When he did speak, his voice was quiet and respectful. He got what he wanted more often when he was polite. So, for the most part, he was unfailingly polite because he was really focused on getting what he wanted. He absolutely cherished the memory of his father, which made it all the more upsetting when, three years after Benjamin had died, Mary met a new man. Carl Lindbergh happened to cross paths with Mary as she and Richard were riding a train from Monmouth to Chicago. Lindbergh was an insurance salesman, the traveling type, who was the opposite of Mary's late husband in every way. Whereas Benjamin was hardworking and quiet, Lindbergh was a hard-drinking loudmouth. He did well financially as a salesman, but he also had a 25-year criminal record. According to one documentary, He had a criminal record that included arrest for forgery and drunk driving. But as David Bowie once sang, love is careless in its choosing, and Mary fell in love. She soon married Carl and moved with her kids to Texas. This upheaval was traumatic for Richard, who felt like everyone was trying to erase all memory of his father. It didn't help that Lindbergh was a hateful drunk. Richard did not remotely understand the appeal to this man, and the disdain he felt toward his stepfather was reciprocated. It wasn't long before his stepfather wanted to kick Richard out of the house. He would get drunk, call Richard a gutter rat, and tell him he couldn't stand the sight of him. Richard had never been a good student, but once he moved to Texas, he just quit trying altogether. He started breaking into Lindbergh's alcohol cabinet, and by age 15 was getting drunk just about daily. His mugshots from the time show a long-faced kid with jutting ears and a face marred by acne scars. Richard dropped out of school in early 1958 and started hanging out with older kids who introduced him to harder drugs and folded him into their criminal activities. He started carrying a switchblade, and he learned how to use the knife to pick window locks. He also learned about sex, mostly from sex workers, and began dividing women into two opposing categories. As far as women were concerned, there were only two categories of women in the world. There were virtuous, virginal, pure, holy Madonna types, and he could find examples, uh, his uh, mother, his sisters. Or there were women who gave their sexual favors away, and these women were sluts, tramps, prostitutes, what have you. This is Marvin Zipperin, a psychiatrist who examined Speck after his arrest and ended up co-writing a book about him called Born to Raise Hell. Zipperin was interviewed in 1968 by the late journalist Studs Terkel. Now, uh, the problem with this kind of an approach, of course, is that it's uh, unrealistic. It's, it's against the facts of ex- existence. And a person who believes this way is constantly developing feelings of hostility towards women because he's constantly in the position of evaluating a girl as a Madonna, finding out that she is a normal human female and feeling betrayed. Zipperin and his co-author, Jack Altman, 
that's the second voice you're about to hear, said that Speck was actually quite religious with a strong sense of morality. I'm not sure how they said that with a straight face, but their take was that he was downright puritanical. The idea of uh, sexuality was abhorrent to him. He, as a matter of fact, in these male magazines that he used to like to read, where he'd like to read about battle and fighting, uh, if there was any kind of sexual material in there, he'd turn away from it. Mm-hmm. This was part of his Puritanism. Uh, he he um, might take a, an issue of Playboy magazine, perhaps, and look at the cartoons. He'd probably ignore the gatefold every time. Nothing of great interest. Speck managed to woo a young woman named Shirley, a 16-year-old he met at the Texas State Fair. Within a month of dating, she got pregnant, and the two married in 1962. Speck was 20. As you can imagine, Speck wasn't the trusting type, so the relationship was volatile from the beginning. Speck accused his young bride of cheating on him, which he denied. He, of course, was cheating on her, being married did nothing to curb his appetite for sex workers. And he would actually bring women home, park in front of the house, and make out with them while his pregnant wife, Shirley, stood watching from the front porch. I can't imagine what this poor teenager felt as she realized what a huge mistake she'd made with this guy. Zipper in again. He felt that she was in the prostitute category because he felt that she'd been unfaithful to him. And the minute he got that idea, she was totally no good. Speck was physically abusive, too. He demanded sex multiple times a day and would slap and choke her if she refused. When Shirley gave birth to Speck's child in the summer of 1962, he refused to pay the medical bills. He also refused to stop committing crimes. I mean, this guy prided himself on his law-breaking. It was part of his identity. By the time his daughter, Robbie Lynn, was born... He had a hefty rap sheet dotted with crimes like indecent exposure, shoplifting, and drunk and disorderly conduct. He had his sights set much higher, though. When he would see atrocious news printed on the front page of the local paper, he would scoff. This is William Nellis, one of Speck's prosecutors. There was this story in the Dallas Sunday papers, and he was reading the papers that morning and, and made the comment that someday... He was going to do something that would also be of equal publicity. Not surprisingly, Shirley left Speck soon after their daughter was born. According to psychiatrist Zipperin, this just fueled his rage further. He became angry, and as he told me once, and I think the way he put it is significant, the Bible tells us not to hate, but if there's one person I hate, it's my ex-wife, and that's the truth. So uh, he was saying there, I know morally it's wrong, but I can't help myself. I hate her. And uh, he had, uh, for example, the night that she left him, taken his car and smashed it against the tree. So violent was his rage. Speck was a hoodlum and tried to dress the part. If you've ever seen The Outsiders, that 1983 Ralph Macchio movie, he was basically a greaser, but without the heart of gold. He slicked back his dirty blonde hair, wore leather coats over white t-shirts, and always had that damn switchblade in his pocket. He would flash that thing pretty regularly just to show how tough a guy he was. Absolute coward. Take away a knife and a gun, and he has no ability to fight with his fist. Yet he had uh, a, a tremendous skill at animal cunning. 
at being able to put people at ease, to kind them. He was a good burglar, uh, he was a good thief, and he was a good liar. That's the part about this case that's hardest to stomach. He was so polite. Even as his crimes escalated and he began robbing and assaulting people, he was super nice about it. He had traveled to Monmouth, Illinois by bus, fleeing Texas after he learned police wanted to interview him for some of his random crimes. And soon after he arrived, he raped a 65-year-old woman whose house he had broken into while armed. The victim told police that her attacker was very polite and spoke very softly with a southern drawl. Can you imagine having to report that some guy broke into your home, threatened you at knife point, but was also quite polite about it all? As Prosecutor William Martin said, this tendency to sound kind and speak softly went a long way for Richard Speck. When he pulled a weapon on someone, he was so calm and reasonable sounding that people genuinely thought he was a nice guy just making some bad choices. He wouldn't hurt them so long as they cooperated. Unfortunately, by the night of the nurse massacre, his aw shucks nice guy routine was well honed. Corazon Amaral was a 23-year-old woman new to Chicago by way of the Philippines. She lived in a bland brick townhouse with two other exchange nurses, plus five Americans who were still students. They all worked at South Chicago Community Hospital. The Americans were just weeks away from graduating. The Filipinos had only joined the townhouse a few months prior, and the culture divide was pretty formidable. Everyone got along well enough But the Filipino women were homesick, and they would talk to each other in Tagalog and spend long hours writing letters back home. This being 1966, there was no email, and telephone calls overseas were too expensive to make very often. July 13th of that year was a typical Wednesday. I mean, as nondescript as the women's townhouse. A few of them worked, someone shopping. The Filipino women made food that reminded them of home, Then, around 11 p.m., the women already in the townhouse started getting ready for bed. Not everyone was home, though, because curfew wasn't until 12.30 a.m. The house mother, who watched over a cluster of identical townhouses, had a strict 1 a.m. lights-out policy. Cora, as she was known to friends, had just crawled into her top bunk when a gentle knock came at her bedroom door. Thinking it was one of the girls, she climbed back down and opened the door and was face-to-face with Richard Speck. He had a knife in one hand and a gun in the other. He asked where her roommates were. With his gun pointed at Cora, Speck forced Cora to lead him to the other bedrooms, where five more girls were getting ready for bed. He herded the women in one room and told them to hand over any money they had. There wasn't much, a few bucks here, a tent spot there, Speck told them he needed cash to get to New Orleans. He wouldn't hurt them, he assured. He just wanted money. The women stayed calm and said they would cooperate. Still armed with both his weapons, he sat on the bedroom floor and had the women do the same. They formed a sort of semicircle around him. Gathered around Speck were Cora, 
23-year-old Valencia Passion, 21-year-old Patricia Matusek, 21-year-old Marlita Gargolo, 22-year-old Pamela Wilkening, and 21-year-old Nina Schmale. Had he been screaming or saying vicious things, the women would have fought him. But he was gentle, almost apologetic. He told them again and again they wouldn't be hurt. One of the other roommates, 23-year-old Gloria Davy, came home from a date. When her boyfriend dropped her off, he dutifully watched her walk from the car inside the house to make sure she was safe. Gloria called the house mother to check in. That was standard procedure. And if she hadn't made that call, the house mother likely would have stopped by to check on her quote-unquote girls. After Gloria hung up the phone, she was greeted by Speck and led to the bedroom with her friends. With Speck briefly out of the room, the women argued with each other in hushed voices. Cora said she wanted to fight, but she was outnumbered. The American women in particular thought that fighting would make things worse. They'd been able to speak calmly to Speck, who shot the shit while smoking cigarettes. And these women even made a few jokes with a guy. This is Abra Prentice-Wilkin, formerly a reporter with the Chicago Sun-Times. They had been trained as nurses through psychology courses to calm people. That was one primary thing that made them think that Speck, you know, we can, we can talk him out of this, we can use our psychology. With seven women now in the room together at gunpoint, Speck said he needed to tie the women's hands. A few questioned why, but it's tough to get too mouthy with a gun in your face, and he again promised they wouldn't be harmed. So they each had to silently weigh things out. Should I make trouble? Should I fight? And risk being the reason this guy snaps and hurts us all? Or should I go along with what he asks? Speck ripped bed sheets into long strips and one by one tied the women's hands behind their backs and their ankles too. And he tied those binds tight. The women were bound in such a way that they couldn't easily move at all. Even just turning around was a huge effort, especially for the American women who generally weren't as tiny as the Filipinos. As soon as the women were bound, they were absolutely helpless. Any hope they had of joining forces to overpower this guy was destroyed. Pamela Wilkening got mad. Here is Speck in a hard-to-hear recording I'll talk more about later. It's hard to make out, but he says that Pam spit in his face and told him she'd pick him out of a lineup. In response... He dragged her out of the bedroom and into a different one. He gagged her mouth, then threw her on the floor and hovered over her, knife and gun still in his hands. He was readying to rape her when two more women, roommate Suzanne Ferris and her friend and soon-to-be sister-in-law Marianne Jordan, came home. Marianne didn't live in the townhouse. She lived in one down the road. But she happened to make the fateful decision to spend the night with the woman her brother was about to marry. When Suzanne and Marianne entered, the place was quiet and the stairway dark. They made it up the stairs without Speck hearing them. That's when they spotted him. This six-foot-tall, gangly man with a pockmarked face and a weapon in each hand, standing over their friend Pam, clearly about to assault her. Suzanne and Marianne turned to run, but Speck moved quickly and grabbed them both. He still had strips of bed sheets handy and tried to tie their wrists, 
But they hadn't been lulled into a false sense of security like the other girls. They had seen him clearly preparing to do something awful to Pam. So they fought. Suzanne, a 22-year-old who was known to face confrontation head-on, likely was the first to fight and the first to die. Speck stabbed her repeatedly in the back and neck. Marianne was next. When her body would be found the next morning, she would still be clutching one of the tattered bed strips in her hand. Speck then plunged the knife into Pam's heart, killing her with a single stab wound. What he did next sounds simple, but is actually next-level evil. He washed his hands. The six women still bound in the back bedroom had heard a bit of struggle and a scream from either Suzanne or Marianne, and then they heard water running in the bathroom. Several of the women instinctively tried to hide, but the best they could do was flop around the closed bedroom, jamming themselves between dressers and bunk beds. In the bathroom, Speck also changed his shirt. He regularly carried a few extra shirts with him because he could be a sweaty guy, and he would change a few times a day. But on this night, the extra shirts were for a special purpose. With clean hands and a clean shirt, he hid the bloody evidence of what he had just done, ensuring that the remaining women still didn't fight as hard as they could. And at this point, they know he's doing something bad, but they're still not thinking murder. I mean, that was just unfathomable. So Speck entered the room, grabbed another woman, hauled her to a different bedroom, not the one with the bodies of three of her friends on the floor, and gagged her so she couldn't scream. Then he killed her, and then he washed his hands. Again and again, he did this. This wasn't a quick ordeal. He didn't grab the women, kill them swiftly, and fetch another. Each killing lasted at least 20 minutes. Some he stabbed, some he strangled. He slit Marlita's throat so brutally that he severed her larynx. When he ran out of body-free bedrooms, he used other rooms. With Patricia, he took her to the bathroom, kicked her so hard in the stomach that her liver ruptured, and then strangled her. While Speck was out of the room, whoever remained inside it tried like hell to free themselves, or at least find better hiding spots. Outside the townhouse, there were a few frustratingly close calls. A pizza meant for a neighboring townhouse was nearly delivered to the women's address by accident. The guy delivering it was about to ring the doorbell when he realized his mistake and cut across the lawn to the right address. In another townhouse, a fellow nurse had run out of bread. She actually came over and knocked twice, once at the front door, once at the back, but never got an answer. Another nurse had planned to return a typewriter she'd borrowed from one of the women, but when she saw the lights were low, she decided it could wait until morning. Who knows what would have unfolded had Speck been interrupted by any of these incidents, and maybe his body count would have been higher that night. Or maybe he would have been spooked enough to flee. Inside the bedroom, Cora watched as woman after woman was hauled away until she and Gloria Davy were the only ones left. Gloria was a striking woman with dark hair, fair skin, high cheekbones. She had been drinking before she came home and mercifully managed to fall asleep during the start of this whole ordeal. She slept through seven of her friends being murdered. Cora was hiding just below her, 
having managed to wedge her body between the wall and the bunk bed until she made it beneath the mattress of the lower bunk. Overhead, she heard Speck enter the room and rouse Gloria, who sleepily said, I dreamed that my mother died. Cora couldn't see from beneath the bed, but what she heard was unmistakable. She heard the rustling of clothes. She heard Speck quietly ask Gloria if she'd ever done this before. She heard mattress springs squeaking. This lasted about 20 minutes, and then Speck led Gloria out of the bedroom. Cora had no idea what happened after that. She was one of the first ones. She was the last one to go. I knew I had all the time in the world. That was Speck saying because Gloria had been last, he knew he could take his time. She was the only one who had to endure a sexual assault before her death. There's been endless speculation as to why she was singled out. The nurse concerned, Gloria Davy, arrived back, arrived after the other nurses. He he saw her afterwards. Um and so, and alone, he went downstairs to uh, let her in, and um, so he was confronted with her by herself. This is Jack Altman, co-author of Born to Race Hell, in that same Studs Turkle interview mentioned earlier. She could have triggered certain responses, responses in him. It does seem significant that she was treated differently from the others. As soon as Speck walked away with Gloria, Cora decided to find a better hiding spot. She slowly managed to maneuver from beneath one bunk bed to another. She thought if she stayed where she had been, this guy might remember having seen her there before and she didn't want to risk it. The other bed had a blanket that sort of dangled over the side, which concealed Cora a little more. Speck took about 50 minutes with Gloria, 50 minutes of more rape, sodomy, and strangulation in the living room of the townhouse. And then, as Cora feared, came back to sweep the bedroom. Eight women lived in this townhouse, and he had eight bodies. But one of those was Marianne, a neighbor. Speck didn't see Cora and apparently had lost count of his victims, so he left. He just walked out the front door. Cora waited for more sounds but heard nothing. Minutes passed that felt like hours, and then an alarm clock sounded. She knew that meant it was 5 a.m. Too scared to move, She still stayed hidden. She listened more and heard nothing. A second alarm began at 5.30 a.m. Finally, Cora managed to get her hands untied. She maneuvered from beneath the bed and untied her ankles, too. She ran to check on her friends, then, horrified, flung open a bedroom window and screamed for help. No one answered, so she banged on the screen until it bent then climbed out the window where she huddled on a ledge, screaming, They're all dead. I'm the only one alive. When help finally came, she begged that no one enter the townhouse. She was terrified the killer was still inside. The cops who walked through the scene of the mass murder were horrified. Never in America had someone killed eight strangers in a single setting. And this area was so small, some of the officers knew family members of the victims, making the crimes even more difficult to stomach. Outside the apartment, Associated Press photographers snapped pictures of a growing crowd gathered around the usually quiet townhouse. 
Another picture showed the bent screen from the window Cora escaped from. Another still showed officers hauling a covered body from the house on a stretcher. In a nearby townhouse, detectives interviewed Cora for the first time. They were expecting to learn that a gang of killers had descended on the place. Instead, as an AP story read, quote, her story to police was semi-hysterical, but she described a lone killer with blonde hair, six feet one, and weighing about 170 pounds, end quote. Across town at the Star Hotel Flophouse, Richard Speck was sleeping. He'd had a long night. Soon, he would wake up and head to a bar. The TV there was turned to the news, and Speck eagerly waited to hear breathless news accounts of his handiwork. And he did hear about it, but he also heard about the survivor he had left. That had been a mistake. He made a few comments to other bar patrons. Wow, that killer must have been a real sex deviant. But no one thought twice about it. I mean, everyone was talking about the slayings. As evening came, newspapers across the country ran the slain woman's photos above the fold. They also ran Cora's name and photo, which, for the record, journalistically was a bad idea. But that's what happened. Speck uneasily realized that the survivor might be able to identify him. When he heard that there was a survivor, that's when he immediately changed his name, called a cab, went to Cabrini Green to leave a dead-end trail and did everything to escape his identity and escape. He thought having a cab drop him off in Cabrini Green, a public housing project mostly populated by Black residents, would ensure his anonymity. But you know, that kind of backfired. Because it was a high-crime area, plenty of the residents paid attention when strangers walked through, and Speck, a greasy-haired, pockmarked-faced white man, stood out. People later remembered seeing him climb from the cab. Cora's physical description had been fairly vague, but she had given enough peculiar specifics that when police began asking around, they nailed down who they were seeking surprisingly quickly. Speck had spoken in a soft southern drawl, and a gas station attendant near the nurse's townhouse remembered such a drawl on a guy asking to store his bags there a couple of days earlier. Another gas station attendant had noticed Speck, too, and had heard him mention he was a sailor and grumble about missing a ship. That led police to the nearby National Maritime Union, where they learned a guy matching this suspect's description had been offered a job on a ship, but was then bumped by a sailor with more seniority. Speck was so mad that he made a scene people remembered, and it so happened that the union officials knew his name and were able to track down his fingerprints. Those prints were compared with 33 prints lifted from the women's townhouse, and Richard Franklin Speck was publicly declared a wanted man. Richard Speck is sought tonight for the murder of those eight student nurses in Chicago. Reports of his whereabouts have cropped up all the way from Illinois to Texas, where he's known to have relatives. Speck looks like the man. He fits the description given police by a lone survivor, and his fingerprints have been found in the apartment where the girls were killed. Speck's brother Howard says the news of the hunt for Richard has left him and his wife nervous wrecks, but he says he'll turn Richard in if he shows in Monmouth, Illinois. The object of the police hunt is 25. He has a record, is known as a seaman, a kind of jack-of-all-trades, and he's liberally adorned with tattoos. 
One of the tattoos described was a design on his arm that read, Born to Raise Hell. A nationwide manhunt was underway. Meanwhile, cops and medics were called to a cheap-ass flop house on Skid Row where one of the drunken tenants had apparently sliced open his wrists. When medics hauled Richard Speck from the Star Hotel, they had no idea who he was. Even though pictures of the man had been plastered all over the city and the EMTs, in fact, had a flyer on their very dashboard, they didn't recognize him. It wasn't until Speck was rushed to the ER that a doctor named Leroy Smith felt a sudden ping of familiarity. Dr. Smith remembered that the killer was described as having tattoos, but this guy's arms were so covered in blood that Smith couldn't see a thing. He literally was so eager to check that he used his own spit to clean off a spot on Speck's arm. He saw the letter B. He wiped more and saw the phrase he'd been looking for, born to raise hell. Richard Speck was arrested and charged with eight counts of murder for which he would stand trial after the doctors saved his life. That the manhunt was over fairly quickly helped people in Chicago sleep a bit better. But it's not like their fears were eased completely. This is William Martin, the lead prosecutor on the case. Before July 13th, Americans were willing at times to leave their windows open at night, maybe even leave their doors unlocked. When they were in their homes and in their beds, they felt complete security because we had not experienced the phenomenon of a random killer. He didn't know these girls. He had nothing against them. And he killed them all for no reason. And with that on the national consciousness, it shattered our innocence. And everybody began taking all kinds of precautions to protect themselves, protect their children. Because Cora was the sole surviving witness to one of the most horrific crimes in American history, authorities worried for her safety. Without her, there was no case. So she was hidden away for months while four officers rotated shifts, keeping her safe 24-7 until the trial was over. A trial, by the way, that was so high profile, it was moved from Chicago, 150 miles away, to Peoria, Illinois, in hopes it'd be easier to find an impartial jury there. Even so, it took six weeks for jury selection. With Cora's testimony, as well as the fingerprints and some other circumstantial evidence, Speck was found guilty on eight counts of murder, and the conviction wasn't without controversy. Marvin Zipperin, the psychiatrist, argued to anyone who would listen that Speck had endured head trauma as a child that left him with brain damage. That, added to the alcohol and drugs he'd taken, caused him to have an irresistible impulse, Zipperin said. It seems to me that it's very difficult to point a finger at Richard Speck or anybody else and say, you are a villain, you're a monster, and uh, you have to be punished for this because, uh, to me, Speck can't be blamed for what he did any more than a man can be blamed for sneezing. That thinking wasn't widely embraced. Speck was sentenced to death. Then, in 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that potential jurors who opposed the death penalty were improperly eliminated from the jury pool, so Speck was to be resentenced. But that became moot the very next year when the Supreme Court essentially put a moratorium on executions after deciding that states were too arbitrary and capricious in their use of capital punishment. That 
in turn, made execution cruel and unusual punishment. With that 5-4 to four ruling, every death sentence in the country was reduced to life in prison. After that, dozens of states enacted new, more specific guidelines for what did and did not qualify for the death penalty, which is why it's legal now when, for four years, it was essentially banned nationwide. Speck was thrilled, as William Martin said. The structure and style and position of authority held in prison were the highest position he ever held in society. If a hurricane blew down the prison, the only prisoner who would not walk away would be Richard Speck. Speck picked up painting in prison and seemed generally content. It would turn out he was having a lot more fun than anyone realized, but more on that in a second. Still, having it made behind bars didn't mean he wouldn't take a shot at parole when he was eligible. He tried again and again, beginning in 1976, 10 years after the slaughter. Seven times, the victim's loved ones returned to court to face the man that upended their lives and left holes in their hearts. I don't think that they should ever release him, and I hope and pray that people will never forget this case and back us up after we're gone. Speck died in prison in 1991 of a heart attack at age 50, just three years younger than his own father, when he died the same way. There's a postscript on this story, and it's a bizarre one. As much as people like Zipperin tried to present Speck as some model prisoner, a video surfaced in 1996 that told an entirely different story and sparked prison reform throughout Illinois. In the video, Speck, who by then had been dead for about five years, was with two other inmates, alone in a room that was supposed to be off-limits to prisoners. Somehow, they'd been allowed access, and they'd even managed to filch a video camera, which they used to film Speck having sex, snorting cocaine off a fellow inmate's body, and talking nonchalantly about the women he killed. It just wasn't their night, he said. At one point, Speck took off his shirt and exposed enlarged breasts that he got by taking smuggled hormones in prison. Not because he was transgender, but because the novelty of the breasts and the sexual favors he offered fellow inmates helped keep him safe behind bars. Speck literally says at one point in the video that if people knew how much fun he was having in prison, they would demand his release. The video sparked outrage nationwide. As a young man, Richard Speck had promised he would someday do something so awful that his legacy would outlive him. Turned out, he was right. Even in death, he kept finding new ways to horrify the world. For this episode, I read the book The Crime of the Century, Richard Speck and the Murders That Shocked a Nation by William Martin and Dennis Brio. I also want to note that the Studs Terkel radio archive was hugely helpful because of Terkel's 1967 interview with authors Marvin Zipperin and Jack Altman. Beyond that, I did the usual cross-eye-inducing deep dive into newspaper archives and learned that the spec portion of the TV show Mindhunter got just about every detail right. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessedNetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, 
and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>